Quite the Thing Media, we aim to bring you the best podcasts produced by independent creators, made without constraints. Hi everybody and welcome to Quite the Interview from Quite the Thing Media. My name is Jack Shaw and today... I am speaking to a filmmaker, a musician, a writer, an entrepreneur. It is Jimmy Fritz. How are you doing, Jimmy? Great, thanks. How are you doing? Yes, I am good. I am good. Thank you for coming on. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Before we get into it, I suppose, you may as well introduce yourself to our listeners. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're here to speak about today? Um. Well, I've had a long and illustrious and interesting and different and alternative life. Um, I'm 65 now, so I started, um, I wrote recently published a book called Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, which outlines my adventures with psychedelics from age 15 to age 65. So it's a 50-year journey of buying, selling, consuming, exploring, and um, getting a lot out of psychedelics. So I finally got around to writing a memoir. I call it a psychedelic travelogue and memoir. And it outlines all my experiences with psychedelics over the last 50 years. I'd previously written a book called Rave Culture and Insider's Overview. That was about 20 years ago. And that was about the, uh, the rave scene, which was largely underground at that time. And I just thought it was, you know, needed to be exposed because I thought there was something really amazing going on there. So that was my first book. This is the second one and uh, just published a couple of months ago available at fine bookstores anywhere and online everywhere so that's what we're going to talk about i guess yeah cool man i will put the uh, link to amazon basically for uh, both of your books i'd like to speak about the the rave culture at some point but we're obviously here to speak about your uh, most recent book the term ethical drug dealer what does that mean, Jimmy? Well, it just refers to the um, the types of drugs and the intention with which people take them. People think of drug dealers and they think of people, you know, selling joints to school kids or selling crack. And you've got all this information about the horrors of drug addiction and whatnot. I've never been a part of that world. I've never been associated with that world. Um, I've only ever dealt drugs which I consider to be uh, uh, have positive effects. So those, these include the psychedelics, basically. And we're talking DMT and uh, psilocybin, <clears throat> marijuana to some degree, and uh, LSD, uh, MDMA, empathogens and, and uh, psychedelics. And these are drugs which people do for completely different reasons than they do crack and cocaine and meth and all the rest of it. They're two completely different worlds. And one of them can be ethical and the other one's decidedly dodgy. (laughs) So I've never been associated with addictive drugs. I've never been associated with sketchy people. I've always dealt to um, professionals, you know, I've, most of my customers were doctors and psychiatrists and professionals of all kind. So they're responsible adults, they're exploring their own consciousness, uh, getting, you know, probably 99% positive results. So it's a completely different world. There is an ethical world of drug use and drug dealing, 
which doesn't get enough exposure. Too many people have got too many negative connotations about drugs and addiction. And that's not what this book about. It's not what my life has been about. I mean, I've known, I've, I've had very little contact with that world. So to me, that's a completely separate conversation than, than what I did in the past. So no violence, no weapons, no guns, nothing I've like that? Any, I've never seen any violence or weapons or guns or sketchy people or addicted people or anything else. Not in 50 years of dealing psychedelics. You can't get addicted to psychedelics. You're not going to get violent on psychedelics. So it's a completely different world. And now we're on the verge of a uh, revolution in psychedelic psychotherapy. And these drugs are being used now, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA. They're being licensed all over the world now. They're being researched all over the world. And they're finding that they're very effective end of life issues, addiction, depression, anxiety, PTSD. MDMA will probably be a prescription medication within the next year or two. It's been a 25 year process by uh, MAPS, an organization called the Multidisciplinary Association for the Psych for Psychedelic Studies. They've been campaigning, a guy called Rick Doblin, probably the most effective anti-prohibitionist uh, activist the world has ever known. He's been at every Senate hearing, he's been campaigning, he's been doing these studies, he's raised tens of millions of dollars to study MDMA as a cure for PTSD. So right now they're in the final stages, stage three studies, and um, they're having fantastic results. I mean, they're curing people with chronic PSD in like one or two sessions. And nothing like that's ever been available before. So it's been fast-tracked now by the FDA as a substance with exceptional potential. So it's been it's jumping the queue, leaping ahead, and it should be a prescription medication for PTSD within the next uh, within the next year or two. Yeah, I can't remember the exact stat. You might be able to inform me and tell me, but I'm pretty sure there's some really interesting results, like you said, with the the PTSD and I think the latest study that I, I was listening to a podcast about it the other day and I think of the, the 12, it was quite a small study, but it was maybe 12 um, with PTSD and within a couple of sessions, I think 11 of them um, sort of came out the other side with either no PTSD, which I'm not 100% sure about, or it, really reduced symptoms of of it basically and I do think there is an interesting conversation to be had there and as long as it's done in the right situation and in the right dosage like I think there might be a little bit of maybe not confusion but if people say MDMA can cure PTSD there might be a misconception that people are like basically getting echoed, getting full of ecstasy and like the the way that you might have during a rave, but it's not quite like that. It's really controlled and there's real science behind it, so there is. Well, it has to be done with the therapy and that's the thing. Yeah. It's not just, it's not a, you don't. It's not just take the drugs, yeah. Yeah, you don't just take the drug and you get cured. You take the drug and what the drug allows you to do, it suppresses all the anxiety centers in your brain. You're no longer attached to the memory. And PTSD is largely a memory problem. 
you have a traumatic experience and you keep it in your volatile memory, you keep it in your immediate memory, and it doesn't get filed into the long-term memory. When something gets filed into the long-term memory, you see it objectively, and you no longer experience the emotions involved with that event. Well, what MDMA does is allows you to talk about the event without anxiety, without the, the, uh, the, you know, the reaction, the emotional reaction. And then in doing so, it sets it back into your long-term memory and then it's dealt with. Then it doesn't, you're not constantly reliving the experience when it's not set properly in your memory. You relive the experience all the time. And it's, you know, it's, it's unbelievably, you know, disruptive to your life. It's, uh, it's impossible to deal with. And there's nothing really that's worked up until this point. And MDMA seems like an incredibly promising uh, solution. Yeah, I think there's been trials with ketamine as well, um, psychedelic mushrooms, especially for things like cluster headaches and things like that. It's the only relief that that some people can get. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm all for it as long as it's done in the in the right way, in the right situation, uh, alongside therapy, obviously, like you mentioned, Jimmy. Let's go back 50 years then, mate. What was your first experience with drugs? Was it was it grass? Was it mushrooms? What was well, yours? I guess the first experience was alcohol. And my grandfather and my father took me to a pub and we sat in the beer garden and they went up to get the beers. And the first, first time I'd ever drank beer and they, my grandfather came back with three pints of beer and put it in front of me and said, get that down yeah." <laughs> so I got through that and uh, became a lifelong beer drinker. But I guess that was the first experience. But shortly after that, not long after that, when I was about 15, I was down at the river by the woods, you know, and a friend of mine, and we, we went out uh, from the pub, into the back of the pub in the woods, and pulls out a little piece of Moroccan hash and scrapes it up and mixes it up with some tobacco, and we smoked that. And that was the first time I got high. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is interesting. <laughs> I could get used to this. So that was the beginning of the journey. I was smoking, uh, you know, hash, mostly hash in that day. This would have been in like 1971. So it was mostly, uh, or actually, yeah, 70, but mostly hashish and uh, very little, very little pot in England at that time. But uh, soon after that, you know, I experimented with anything that came along, really, and uh, started a lifelong journey with psychedelics. I've probably done them all at one time or another. Right, okay. <clears throat> Is there an argument that you smoked that joint the very first time and had a good time? Same as me when I was about 13 or 14 as well, smoked a little bit of, we would call it soap bar here, um, like the really cheap, like it might have 1% THC if you're lucky in it, you know, like it would sometimes have plastic bag in it and so on and so forth, really depending on who you were buying it from. I had a good time the first time. I encountered it as well, and it kind of led on to many years of trialing things. Do you think your life would have been any different if, say, you had smoked that joint and were sick the first time? Hit a whitey, basically. I'm not sure, possibly. But, I mean, a lot of people do have, uh, you know, a, a, a weird experience the first time. Some people don't get stung for the first few times. And, um, you know, and then later on, they'll be at a party and they'll catch a buzz, and then they go, oh, that's what it's about. But... Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, I can I can talk about my first LSD trip was pretty much in my entire life was the only real negative 
uh, experience I've ever had with psychedelics. And I describe it in detail in the book, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, available at fine bookstores everywhere. And uh, mm-hmm. I give uh, quite a detailed account of this first LSD experience. And I was 16 years old. And we're down the pub and somebody says, you want some trips, man? You know, we said, whatever, you know, didn't even know what LSD was, never heard of it. And um, we just took these, what turned out to be purple microdots. They're like about 350 to 400 micrograms of acid. And um, it was a nightmare. I mean, my roommate went insane. He smashed up the place. The Italian waiter that was at the the hotel with us, he was uh, he he went berserk and was basically just gibbering. He just turned into a gibbering idiot. Um, the the other guy turned actually quite violent and smashed up my apartment and everything in it. I thought I was dead. I thought it was a lizard. I thought you know this is the end of the world. Yeah. And uh, twelve hours later, after the most nightmarish experience you can imagine, I came down. And um, was just amazed at the, you know, at what had happened. And I thought that uh, we figured it was heroin because heroin was the, you know, the big bad daddy of all drugs. It was the strongest drug that anybody could imagine. So it must have been that because nothing could have been stronger than this drug that we'd taken. Anyway, we found out later it was LSD and it was a purple microdont, blah, blah, blah. So that was, uh, but that, that, that actually, I didn't do LSD or even anything for about two years after that. But then with education, you know, I started reading Leary and I started reading, uh, you know, lots of literature on the subjects and talking to people about it. And I realized that, you know, I'd just done too much and I wasn't prepared. You know, Leary's, Timothy Leary's big thing was set and setting. Yes. You have to be set being your frame of mind and setting being the location and the ambience which you do it. Yeah, if you take two hits of acid and go see a horror movie, you're likely to have a you know bad experience. But if you do a half a hit of acid and go for a long walk with a few close friends in the woods, you're likely to have a fantastically, you know, fantastic experience. So it's all about how you use it. And that was that was part of my uh, education, you know that uh, the next time I did it was a few years later in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And I did it on the beach in a beautiful surrounding with some wonderful people. And it was, it was uh, one of the most, you know, one of the most um, influential experiences of my life, which is it's what a lot of people say. If you, if you talk to people that have done acid, even if they've only done it once or twice in their life, they'll often say that uh, it was a very important experience and it changed their mind. It does change your mind. It literally changes your, your, your neuro pathways in your brain it maps new neuro maps for your experience and uh, it really does you know literally and and physically expand your consciousness yeah well don't have to speak about me but i had a really really terrible time the second time i took acid but again setting was wrong we went out to a raven friday we were out friday night stayed up friday through saturday and got the acid sunday morning and took it after I'd been up for 72 hours. And a party house, there was people coming and going. It was fucking horrendous. Similar to you, thought I was dead, thought I was in purgatory. Tried to walk out, look at the window, was shut, tried to walk out the window. So, yeah, it can be horrendous, but I had a couple of good times as well. So it was it was that setting, Jimmy, like you say, you need to get that. You need to get that right. You need to be in the right frame of mind. I think if you've got any sort of 
nervous energy before taking it. Don't do it. I don't have like any sort of negative thoughts or any sort of dubiety about your situation. Then I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be advising it. No, but in a comfortable situation with your friends, then yeah, go for it. Moving on, then. Um, it's the same with any with any drug and any experience. That you know, there's there's optimal doses, an optimal set and setting, and you can have you know a, a great experience or a terrible experience. And then alcohol is no exception, right? You can have a gl- couple of glasses of wine with dinner, and have some nice conversation afterwards, and feel relaxed and happy. Or you can drink, you know, a, a 26 ounces of uh, vodka in one go and you'll have a horrible experience right same drug so getting on to later in life then you've expanded your mind opened your mind took all these psychedelics you got into drug dealing then and decided to to do that was that to fund a lifestyle what what made you choose to sort of go on that path well, a couple of reasons. There was one because um, I wanted to, you know, when I first discovered hashish, I wanted to smoke more of it and I wanted to have it around when I wanted it. So to do that, I found that if I could, uh, you know, the first dealing that I did was I'd buy a quarter ounce of hash, chop it up into seven grams, sell four grams, get my money back and then have three grams to smoke. So that was the original, you know, that was the original impetus that I'd get free free hash. Uh, later on, you know, I found that if you get into larger amounts and you can make some pretty good money at it. So that was an also another, you know. And then plus, I mean, when I started dealing E, for instance, when I was raving, when I first discovered rave at the age of 40, I would change my life completely. And I had all these friends with me and all this quite a large group of friends. I mean, I was doing, I was doing raves. I was promoting raves every month. For a few for a few years, and so I had a huge, uh, you know, group of friends yeah. who all wanted high quality ecstasy. So, you know, buying it from anybody at a party is pretty sketchy, especially when they started. You know, it was all press pills, and the press pills were they'd start out good, and then they'd get sketchy, and then there'd be copies. And right. I have a chart on my wall here in my office, and it's about a uh, two hundred pills, all with the testing information underneath them. And they're all, they all have something. There isn't one that's 100% pure, 100%, you know, good dose of MDMA. They all have additives. They all have problems. And, and so I started to um, buy it straight from a lab in crystal form. And you buy it, you know, the last, you buy it in a crystal and then you crush it up yourself. And you know that there's no additives. You know it's 100% pure. And so I could guarantee that to myself and my friends and family. So. It was important for me to get really good, really good sources. And so to do that, I had to get that myself. And then I would end up, you know, with, with what I wanted. But then I'd have extra to sell and cover my costs and make some money. You've been quite open about what you were, what you were doing, Jimmy. Any trouble with the police in your life? Never. Never? And like I can say, I think that's a, that's a product of, you know, of, um, of choosing, choosing my customers. So I always I always screen my customers. I wouldn't sell to anybody. I had people coming up to me at parties all the time saying, you know, do you know where I can get to me? And I go, no, nope, I have no idea. So I would never sell to a stranger. And um, I, ch- I chose the people that I sold to. And if they were, 
the, the prerequisites for coming to my party, they were membership only. It was a society called the, uh, we called it SPEC. So it was a society of, the Society of the Perpetuation of the Empathiogenic Celebrations. Right, okay. And uh, I had 300 people on an email list. And I'd choose those people and I'd certify them as members. But to be a member, you had to be 100% cool and groovy. That was the prerequisite. <laughs> yeah, man. You had a card with, you know, so-and-so, the, the holder of this card is a member of SPEC and is in good standing and is certified 100% cool and groovy. So I'd have to, uh, so I certify people, you know, and if they were, if people were at all sketchy or they were into sketchy drugs, they didn't get a membership. So we ended up with this very, very tight group of people that were all on the same page. They all just wanted to go on this transpersonal journey and have a group mind experience on ecstasy with really good music. And um, it worked. It was it was fantastic. But those it was handpicked people. Right. And that's how I've always approached anybody that I've sold anything to. I've always screened them. They always they have to be certified 100 percent cool and groovy. Yeah. Um... MDMA, I'll admit, was a was a favourite of mine for a good few years. You were promoting raves um, during the nineties when it was mostly underground. Any massive acts back in the day that you you promoted that uh, through a great party for you that you just blew your mind or that you remember very clearly? Well, I think they all blew my mind. Ah, <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. I mean, there was so I was very I was very choosy about the, the events that I went to. So, mm. you know, I would choose the uh, I would choose the events most likely before I started producing my own parties. And then when I did my own parties, um, you know, I got to choose all the music. So I would program the DJs two hour slots. We'd have four DJs go from 10 to six. And um, and then I coach them and I'd work with the DJs because I wanted to create this seamless musical journey throughout the night. So I would I would actually tell them exactly what to play and what beats a minute and then I'd monitor the volumes and, and we'd have this seamless journey throughout the night. It worked really, really well. So I had a, a lot of really, you know, peak experiences. And how did DJs take that, um, getting that guidance from, are you a DJ yourself? Are you musically talented? Uh, I am a musician, yeah. I have a YouTube channel under Jimmy Fritz and... Um, in the last few years, I've been recording and uh, making music videos of all my original songs. So you can check out Jimmy Fritz on YouTube and uh, take a look at some music videos. So I'm a songwriter, singer-songwriter. I play guitar and piano and ukulele and a few other. I can get in it, a tune out of pretty much anything. But um, I did... Um, I did study the music. I mean, in my first book, I interviewed a lot of DJs and a lot of producers around the world from like 30 different countries. I made a questionnaire and I interviewed people on the phone and whatnot. So I got a massive amount of material about the music and about the history of the music. So there's one yeah. chapter that's specifically about the history of the music and how it came about and how it evolved. Then there's more information in there about all the different genres and what makes genres genres and what makes it what it is. So I became a bit of an expert on the music. So I knew exactly what I wanted. And I know exactly what the effect of the music is. And mostly DJs were okay because, I mean, I just frame it and I'd call the DJ and I'd say, okay, I want you to play 
you know, I want you to start off at 124 beats a minute with some deep house. And then I want you to, to progress to some sort of Chicago house and some more upbeat stuff by the end of the set. And then end up at uh, 28, 128 beats a minute. And they said, yeah, okay, I can do that. And that was the deal, right? So I made the deal and they agreed to it. And then they would uh, do pretty much almost always. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they go rogue. <laughs> if they went yeah. rogue, they never got invited back. <laughs> See, that's the thing. I know quite a lot of um, DJs through my, from a time raving. You'd always get the guys that would turn up at the parties with the, with the decks and they would play their music. And I don't think the, the ones that I know would, would have took too kindly to you trying to maybe not dictate to them, but say to them, do this and do that. I can see why maybe some of them went a little bit rogue but yeah the history of music the history of dance music is very interesting as well jimmy you know back in back in the disco times you know detroit and all the way through there yeah got a lot of time for electronic music what do you think of the i'm going to go here what do you think of the electronic music nowadays they may call it edm yeah, well, it's gone through a lot of evolution. I mean, when I was when I was doing parties and when I was involved in rave culture, it was all progressive house and trance, yeah. or progressive house slash trance, and then it, the trance went off into all different directions into hard trance and side trance and goa trance and whatnot. But it was there was a certain certain uh, you know certain standardization of music, and then it split off into you know twenty five different genres. I've never been a fan of the of the breakbeat genres. So I've never been a fan of jungle or drum and bass no. or even hip hop where it came from. I was not a fan of that rhythm. And that rhythm and that type of music doesn't create the environment which unifies everybody. That progressive house really did. It created this metronomic, you know, drum beat that everybody clued into and everybody could dance to. And it really, it was a unifying effect. And when you throw a drum and bass set into that, it's all bets off. Everybody's off to the washroom and then one, you know, it it doesn't it doesn't unify the crowd in the same way. It doesn't give you the same, same <clears throat> feeling. So now I think it's it's you know, I think that's pretty much lost now. That that kind of uh, that kind of party, that kind of event. I think it's past now. Now it's split up into lots of like there's techno parties, there's house parties, there's deep house parties, there's dubstep parties and it's all splintered off into lots of different groups instead of one unified front which was what made the rave scene work it was that unification it was bringing everybody together and that human connection which made it work and uh, I don't see that much. I mean there's still some fun parties and you know it's fun to socialize and hang out and, and, at parties but it's not the same thing it's a with the spec parties especially because it was such a focused group everybody came with the same intention the intention was everybody was going to do MDMA. Everybody was going to listen, you know, go on board with this this music, and just go on the journey and let it take them together in this group mind experience. And that was the that was the rave experience. I have a chapter in my book called the Rave Experience, and it's kind of talks about what what makes it and what 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 conditions is that you need to make that happen. Yeah. Big fan. Like I say, spent a lot of time partying in my youth. I was into, I started trance, you know, kind of that. That was a sort of, well, actually, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, there was a genre called Happy Hardcore. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bonkers, you know, like really, really quick. Loved that as a 
as a child grew out of it and then sort of back into trance about 15, 16 before sort of splintering off into um, techno. I was really into techno, animal techno. That was sort of my, my scene. I had a had a great time. Um, I think if I went to a party now, but I would be in hospital probably <laughs> the next day, man. I don't think I could I could do it. I could do it I again. I gas a little bit too. I used to do, you know, I used to do a rave every week for 10 years and I, I don't think I can do that now. I mean, I can still go to about four or five and then sleep for three days. But <laughs> yeah, you uh, you lose you lose gas. You ever hear of a guy called Chris Cowie? Uh, the name doesn't ring a bell, Jimmy, no. He's a Scottish uh, Scottish producer. He produced under a lot of different names. He was X-Cabs. He was Scan Carriers. He was Bulwark. Um, he was Vegas Soul. He made a lot of tracks. He was very, very prolific. He had about 21 different pseudonyms. So you mm-hmm. certainly heard his music. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's one of the interviews I did for my first book, Rave Culture, an insider's overview. And um, it was interesting because, you know, he, he used to write lots of tracks. He used to write a track every day. Right. They were house tracks. Then he put them all together and, in a, on a house CD and call it, make up a different name. So he had about 21 different aliases, which was interesting. A lot of the producers did because they produced a lot of music and they produced different genres. So they just packaged them, put them out. Yeah. And Caps was his trance name. Right. Okay. And in Glasgow and Scotland, we've got the Arches, which is shut down now, which is unfortunate. And the Sub Club, um, those were. Basically run by Slam and show my records, you know, the Slam yeah. tent at Tea in the Park. Um, they've yeah. done really well from, for themselves and they've ran really good parties for 20, 20 odd years as well and they're still going strong. Um, right. I think they're bringing back the Slam tent at Tea in the Park and it's got a bit of a bad reputation maybe nowadays because, I don't know, I'm going to maybe pass aspersions here. I think because of the the drinking the cocaine, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that's it's not everybody full of ecstasy, having a great time. Um, nice yeah. one, brother. Everybody's hugging, sweating. It's not like that's that anymore. It's purge and cocaine. Yeah. Yeah, MDMA made everybody, you know, made everybody empathetic, right? So yeah. everybody was empathetic. When you throw, and the rave scene really started to go downhill when GHB hit the scene. Because then people were swigging GHB and they were dropping like flies on the dance floor and the police were called and ambulances and, you know, they, they were all put down to MDMA-related events because yeah. those people had MDMA in their system as well. But it wasn't MDMA that was, you know, making them unconscious on the dance floor. It was swigging out of GHB bowls. And then, of course, Coke changed the whole thing as well. There's a lot of, you know, Coke and drunks and the bar crowd started to get into it because, you know, when you get out of the bar and you're drunk and it's two o'clock in the morning, you want to find a party. So you'll go to the nearest rave. You don't get the you don't get the ethos. You don't get the point of it. But you just want somewhere to be because you don't want to go home. So that changed the whole, you know, the dynamic changed the whole scene and the whole vibe. And that was the beginning of the end, really. Yeah, 100 percent. At your peak, Jimmy, how much money were you making? If you mind me oh, asking, sorry. Probably around 50, 100 grand a year. Right, okay, so I thought you were going to say a week. <laughs> <clears throat> no. Right, okay. So, yeah, 
Not bad. And did you work full-time as well? Did you have another job or were you sort of doing that full-time? Yeah, I've always had lots of other things that I do. I've done music for years. Um, I've been an entrepreneur, so I do um, I sell herbal products and uh, I've done that online for the last 20 years. We have a product called Einstein Oil, which we've sold and been very successful with. It's uh, first sell it to pot growers for spider mites. Right, okay, okay. Now, one question that I do ask um, podcasters normally, but I'll ask you as well, Jimmy. If you could go back to one point in your younger life, where would you go and what would you tell yourself? Well, I could go back to pretty much any point and and say, just keep on doing what you're doing. (laughs) I see I don't really have any regrets. I can't think of anywhere where I where I went in the wrong direction or anywhere that I could have gone in a better direction. So yeah, I think I would uh, I could go back to any point and just say, Yeah, you're doing all right, carry on. I'll see you at the end. Yeah, that's pretty cool because you are the only person that has said that. And do you think that has to do with the psychedelics, the the way that you've lived your life that you just think fuck it basically and well, get charged no on and... there's no doubt that psychedelics have enriched my life you know to a great degree opened my mind made me creative uh you know turned me into a writer and a musician and a filmmaker and um yeah i do credit psychedelics with with opening up my mind and, and creativity and uh, improving and enhancing the quality of my life all the way through so I think I'd have had a very different life without psychedelics. I couldn't imagine my life without psychedelics. Yeah, for sure. Now, obviously, you've you've been on a few podcasts um, promoting your book, X, Y, and Z. If you had your own podcast, is there anybody that you would really like to interview or have a conversation with? Um, I don't know, maybe Sam Harris. Right, okay. Ricky yeah. Gervais would be fun. Yeah, um, they've got a. They released the first episode of their podcast and then charge you fourteen ninety nine to listen to the next eleven episodes. So, I've got my qualms about that. Um, although I do think that producers should make money and be able to monetize for sure. But I thought that was a little bit sneaky how they released that first episode and then put everything else behind a a fifteen pound paywall. But that's yeah. just that's just me. That's just me. Well, you know, I'm all for artists getting paid and yes public mm-hmm. intellectuals and podcasters. I'm all for, for content to, you know, for people to be able to make a living. Yeah, 100%. A lot of time and energy into these things, right? It's not like you just do it instantly. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of background. There's a lot of knowledge involved. And, I, you know, I have no problem with people charging. The problem now is that there's so many different services, streaming services, podcast services, you know, that are available. You can't sign up to all of them. I mean, even if they're cheap, even if they're only five dollars a month, you try, you know, you 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 uh, sign up to a hundred of these things, and you're spending fortunes. So it's a bit of a problem right now. Is which ones? It's like the streaming services. I have Netflix, um, you know, and but there's about a dozen other ones. If you signed up for all of them, you'd be paying, uh, you know, thousand pounds a month. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I do think that independent creators should be able to monetize, but as it it's a difficult landscape to make to make money in. You know, podcasting used to be niche, yes, yes. 
I suppose, like the rave scene used to be a little bit niche. You know, it was cool, and that's where the the people that weren't perhaps involved in big culture would go and they would have their own thing. Podcasting used to be like that, but it's not like that. It's not like that anymore. It's growing, and I'm hoping to make money off it someday, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are too. Before we wrap it up, Jimmy, where can uh, people find you? Like I says, I will put the link for... Uh, your books in the show description I'll link to your YouTube and stuff like that is there anywhere else that people can find you I think that's about it for social media is YouTube and then there's my book links that's that would be good right okay I will stick them in the show description but Jimmy thanks for joining me I had a I enjoyed the conversation you know it was a, a bit of a trip down memory lane for myself as well yeah, most of the other people I've talked to have points of connection because a lot most people have been through some sort of kind of psychedelic experimentation, right? So they can relate. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, good chat. Thanks. Right, uh, cheers, Jimmy and listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We will speak to you soon. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye bye. Quite the Thing Media, we aim to bring you the best podcasts produced by independent creators, made without constraints.